Welcome to Pi Data Manchester, episode four. Today we're talking with Leanne Fitzpatrick, head of data at Hello Soda. Leanne has recently relocated from Manchester to Austin, USA. You may have seen her at Mancamel, Herplus Data, Texas Data Day, or Node 2019. Leanne is a passionate data leader with experience developing, implementing, and growing a data analytics and data science function within what was a startup business, and is an advocate of getting data science straight into production. She is an advisory panel board member at the University of Sheffield Information School. Leanne was shortlisted for Young Leader of the Year in the Women of IT 2018 Awards, and more recently was a finalist in the Women in Identity Awards. Aside from her enthusiasm for making data concepts simple to understand, in her spare time, Leanne likes to enjoy great food and music, is a keen American football fan, and is attempting to get into golf. You've obviously done a lot of stuff, Leanne. Uh, I'm sure John will be really keen to talk to you about data science in production, because he always seems to ask people those kind of questions. <laughs> and American football. Oh, yeah, that's true. Both NFL fans. Which teams? Seattle <laughs> Seahawks. Cincinnati Bengals. Oh, not too much of a rivalry. It could be worse. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Both hate the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yep, everyone hates the Pittsburgh Steelers. Exactly. Yeah. 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 FC football club soccer. soccer. Oh right, yes, actual football, not proper football. football. Yeah, yeah. Oh nice. Oh wow. Good luck to them. <laughs> America <laughs> is our second largest audience for the podcast. <laughs> so this is the fan service. So apologies to anyone that's British, but welcome America. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we'll get into data science. So <laughs> segueing very smoothly, Leanne, how did you get into data science? Wait, 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 but is there anything Leanne wants to add to the introduction, and what does Hannah Soda do? Ooh, oh, yeah. well, seeing as though I did give you my usual splur of what I get up to, which was expertly read, so thank you so thank much. You. Um, <laughs> um, I don't want to add anything, apart from that my golf handicap seems to be going up rather than down. <laughs> and uh, so Hello Soda are a big data analytics business, um, specialising in understanding um, consumers via um, providing solutions for identity and verification services to decrease fraud risk, and also for hyper-targeted marketing. And uh, at the heart of what we do is very much user consent-led data sources. Hmm. So uh, we kind of tackle various different um, sectors, so we have a number of uh, gaming clients right through to retail finance, so we kind of get to dabble in many flavours of, of what data can do in different places. Cool, sounds interesting. Um, sounds like you've got data prominence issues all the way through. <laughs> oh, oh, we really want to get onto data prominence straight in. So, oh, yeah, I, really, I really don't. I really treat later on. Data version control, yeah, okay. we'll save it for later. <laughs> leave the audience hanging on their toes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, for people who don't know, um, Hello Soda is a Manchester-based, not startup anymore. Yep, congratulations. Um, wow, yeah. Thank you. Small business. Yeah. Something going well. Um, and you're starting leading the, the surge of IT and data science in Austin, right? Yeah, so I guess um, what, what we 
set out doing was we opened up a sales office out in Austin in 20, it must have been 2017 now. And um, we've tried to be growing that out. And recently we just moved offices. Um, so we came out of a, although we had our own office, but it was a shared workspace called Industrious. And we now have very gorgeous uh, personalized offices, similar to what we're sitting here in uh, Manchester, but very much a little bit smaller um, on Congress itself. So I feel very at the height of uh, what's going on in, in Austin and uh, I also it's a bit bad for me because right opposite is a little Belgian bar called Montserrat so <laughs> yeah it's, it's only going to get more dangerous as the summer progresses and the, the craving for a Friday afternoon or I should say evening uh, quick drink will definitely increase <laughs> so but yeah so I ended up moving out to the Austin offices in January of this year um, to kind of help support the sales team out there um, so all being well that will be a two year secondment whilst I still manage my team back in the Manchester office. That's how you're going to get the best of both worlds there. A little bit. I must admit that although the weather here is great today, it's I must admit um, the weather is substantially better in Austin. <laughs> so I do not miss the Manchester rain and the like the the you know the horizontal slashes mm. of wind and rain <laughs> and sleet. I think there was some sleet recently when I was in London last week. There was some hail. I was mm. not happy. So. <laughs> so what are you back for right now? So we actually, I, we actually took the whole company out to Berlin last week. So every year we do a big kickoff to start our financial year where we bring um, all the teams together to a different location. And so we can kind of have a bit of a strategic plan and big kickstart to the year, along with a bit of a, a nice jolly in the evenings. And so we actually did a, a Berlin open top bus tour because the weather was really good. It was like 20 degrees. So yeah, so everybody's just got back from that. And then I'm staying here for the week to, to have some face time with the team, which definitely, I, I've got used to kind of all the remote Google Hangouts. It's definitely my friend, not that I'm promoting Google <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, um, but it's very nice being able to kind of actually see people face to face. That's hmm. um, yeah, good. So um, now that you're back and you've had enough time, you've, had, you've been in Austin enough time to get used to it, kind of what's the what's the difference between Manchester and Austin? So, yeah, I waffled on about the weather. When it comes down to data science, I think the culture is very much advanced in comparison to where um, Manchester and the Northwest are, and even I think what I've seen in London. So I noticed that even when I was going, so I've been going out to Austin since the beginning of um, 2017, um, and oh wait, I, I told a lie. We opened up our sales office in September of 2016. I have to go back and do some weird edit. <laughs> anyway, um, I went. I've been going out to our, our, our Austin offices um, since uh, March of 2017, and whenever I do any kind of meetup or networking or data science event, it seems that they're always kind of one step ahead of where the rest of the market is in terms of the UK scene. And I think it's because there's just been such a an, a huge migration of tech. Um, companies moving to Austin, especially off of the West Coast. So you've got the likes of Google, you've got Facebook there, you've got HomeAway there, 
you've got um, you've got a number of big kind of giants kind of operating. You've got Dell who are like investing heavily into their technology and getting seen as rather than like a hardware company, they really want to see be seen as a, a kind of a software development and data science company now. And so um, what's happened is that kind of there's a there's a huge hub of all of this expertise that uh, a lot of these companies have actually paid to bring people from other places, whether it be New York or the West Coast, into Austin, and that kind of diversity has meant, therefore, there's this huge encouragement of kind of A, competitiveness, and B, different information from the different places that people have worked in. So it's that whole, I uh, very much believe in this, that the more kind of different opinions you get from different kind of upbringings and, and um, transient places, the more information you get, that's just a natural kind of realm of life and it's definitely being seen in the tech in the tech kind of world within Austin. So for example, whereas I was waffling on about kind of getting using Docker for data science back in 2015, they would literally roll my eye roll their eyes kind of come 2017, 2018, yeah, being gone done, done got the t-shirt. <laughs> whereas I was still like kind of chastising people about containers <laughs> right up until about the beginning of 2018 in Manchester. I'm still back in that now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The biggest one for me is that I was at a round table in November which really made me so excited to leave Boston. <laughs> And the data leaders around that table, um, only of the 20 people that were around that table, only two of us were able to put our hand up and say that we use version control <gasps> in data. <gasps> so, and that's on our code, not on our physical data. That's just mm. version control for mm. your code. Oh my gosh. Um, so only two of us at that point in November of 2018 were we were able to um i won't name any names but, um the, the, the other individual <laughs> the other individual i do i do fairly respect so it's good to say it's extraordinary yeah um so that's that's interesting because you turn around to people in austin and they were literally like they would keel over and do what you just did which is you're not version controlling any of your code in a data team what are you doing um so it's very bizarre i think there's very much an analyst people are doing analysis and calling it data science in a lot of the north um i think that's traditional reasons particularly like places like leeds which have been heavily analytics driven using traditional processes like SaaS and SPSS or traditional software services mm. to help with those analytics. You can't version control that. So right. I think there's there's reasons for that, that um, the big service licenses have had their kind of stronghold in very much the part of the North community and getting the kind of the business change to kind of adapt and think differently is a huge undertaking and can be quite a loss making issue for the business as well. Yeah, one of the topics we keep coming up on is, uh, like especially with Liam, um, episode two, I think, and we talk a lot about uh, how new data scientists start, um, and new data scientists in, in a new company, it's all about business transformation, just as much as it is about software engineering. Yeah, about the engin data engineering first. Like, do mm. they have data available? Because <laughs> sometimes they think they have one a data scientist, but they don't actually have the data available, or not in a way that can be used yeah. at that time. And that's where, I mean, I, I think now, even coming from a more analytic perspective, um, if you're using GPyther or, or Python, obviously there are issues with version control, but if you're making a, um, a recommendation um, on based on the analytics you're doing, say to a director, go spend a million pounds on whatever, you want to be able, you want to be reproducible, you want to be as confident in, in that as you can do. Um, a million pounds spend could have more of an impact on a business than um, a new feature on the website. 
Yeah, and I think as well it comes down to that it's such still in such a massive field still to this date that we don't have the level of expertise. Like I'm fortunate to be sitting around a room with people that I very much consider to have those expertise, and so I can have those kind of awesome conversations with. But we're still in a world where I feel like everything is still very novel, and we've been literally digging around in the dirt, figuring out what the pillars of our of our structure and like the pillars of our kind of uh, work actually looks like and what are the structures that we're going to be putting into place and it's all well and good stealing those off of software engineering but a like if you're a junior being hired by a company is you're going to be our first data scientist and they're so excited and everything's awesome but two years ago I remember looking at somebody's university course for what data science was offering and I was mortified you know I was like oh my gosh I'm very worried that anybody coming out with effectively a master's which is a really like great looking degree and being considered as therefore an expert that the and there's not many people for people to look to and that's where that whole going to a networking event going to the meetups figuring out how are other people doing it and even in Austin, I was meeting a coffee with, with somebody who was like, we're still struggling to get machine learning into production. Mm. And I was like, this made me want that. You know, Austin's so far ahead and I see all these companies solving things and I think everybody wants to keep their heart cast to their chest. And it's kind of like this secret, secret club of the people who know how to do the things that don't want to share all the things in data science. And I don't know what the risk is. Like, if we just open up that conversation everyone's going to be better for it and we can help those juniors who are like I'm the first person in this business and I don't really know what to do <laughs> right. and, and everyone's better off for it because people we're just friends right and that's what I love about the tech community is that there is that community and I don't want that kind of jealousy or that kind of paranoia of stealing ideas I think because mm, it slows the industry down more than it then you lose out on it's also any particular within the community as well. I, yeah. I think I think it's like a byproduct. Yeah, you lose overall rather than gain your own from your own advancement, keeping it close to yourself. Mm. Um, yeah, because I mean, if saying, you think yeah. like in Aust on Austin, you've got both Enthought and Anaconda, and they both develop um, uh, management packages for Python and develop their own Python packages as well. They can coexist in the same tiny city, yeah. and it's fine. Yeah. Um, well, although Anaconda actually came from, from Enthor, didn't they? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that is a relationship that, that survives. And well, it comes back to what you were saying earlier on, Leanne, at least I think it does, and that you've got a lot of people with different perspectives and mm. trying to solve slightly different problems. Mm. So mm -hmm. everyone, like, there's natural evolution from those ideas mm. and cross-pollination in it. Um, because no one's solving the exact same problem, especially with data, because data changes so quickly, and especially in slightly different business uh, contexts, you're solving almost a different problem, but you can learn a lot from what someone else is doing. Right, I mean, your customer base is going to be different, and how people are using your product is going to be different. Yeah. Yeah, even if you're doing like consultancy or you're doing like third party services that you think, oh, if I let this little piece of snippet of information go, it's it, it, for me, it's like I, I was really fortunate um, when I was at Texas Data Day to hear uh, Martin Fowler in a ch fireside chat around um, uh, refactoring. And it was a real eye opener for me from a data science perspective because I was like, these are the conversations that we need to be having in data science. It's, it's not about what we're using data science to do, it's, it's what are the structures and the, the formats and the ways we want to operate and work 
and let's just talk about those because there's nothing competitive about that. Whether or not you refactor your engineering code is not going to make you, well, it will make you or break you as a, as a software company, right? But it, it doesn't mean whether or not you're going to have, and it may help you have competitive advantage, but it doesn't change the nature of the product that you are physically selling. Right? It's not the USP. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't see anyone, any software engineer, uh, software engineering based products saying, oh, and by the way, we do this thing called refactoring, so therefore you should buy us. Like, yeah. <laughs> Unless refactoring makes it run faster, which could be a difference in whether people like your product. Yeah, but then surely you just be like the fastest running product on yeah. the market. Yeah, but I mean, those extra seconds of a page opening or something happening can, yeah. can really frustrate users. Yeah, so and that's what I mean when it comes to data science. I'd, I'd hope that you know, people aren't selling data science by saying, hey, we do this really cool thing called data version control. Yeah. Data yeah. Provenance, you know, like no one really cares. So yeah. we care, but the, the yeah. end supplier doesn't. Yeah, know. yeah. Like, yeah. are you going to get an investment because you say you do that? I don't know if the investors really care. Right? The customer isn't going to care about buying product if it's version control or not. Something they just want it to work, don't they? Exactly. Yeah. That's an interesting question, though, because I feel like hopefully we can start to certainly for consumers educate them around their data and and companies that do treat their data mm. right. So I guess that mm. leads us on to a very difficult ethical question that we probably don't want to go into. We're not going to tangent it too much. Um, Coming back to our data science in production, um, so we've kind of spoken about a couple of the considerations of operations, so um, kind of refactoring and making sure it's easy to do that kind of thing, um, as well as um, around GDPR and regulatory needs. Mm -hmm. how, do we, um, how do you focus on balancing operational needs for kind of data science needs? So making sure we've got the right uptime mm -hmm. um, and right response time, but mm -hmm. also we've got the appropriate accuracy. So my approach to this has always been to think of deployment first. So I'm very much an applied. So my background was in financial mathematics. That was my master's. And so everything I learned was always for commercial use within kind of financial um, trading. Mm -hmm. And so kind of my approach to, and then I, I worked for a credit bureau where everything had to, was going straight to a client to be used directly within that kind of engine. So I've always had a very much an applied background. And so, um, um, I very much um, respect, we very much need a research part of data science to kind of create all of the novel and new techniques that we need, such as a lot of the great things that are happening in um, machine learning understanding, so things like Lime and really understanding kind of uh, what a black box model is doing, that there's huge, huge progression in that. Just, just um, to us, Lime's an R packet, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's been huge growth and so certainly with like techniques like SMO and GANs, which obviously we've seen all of the like the beautiful model faces. So there's, you know, it's a big place for research. Mm. My background is more, how do we get data science straight into production? So how do I take this, this uh, thing that I've written without having to physically write it down onto a piece of paper and then get an engineer to write it. And so that was where we started using containerized applications, serving our models as HTTP requests. 
um, back in 2015. And our evolution has grown from that. So very much when I'm hiring people, very much looking for people who are thinking about deployment and getting their item into production from day one. That might that doesn't necessarily mean it's in the production system being used directly by a client from day one, mm. but it means that they've got that approach to understanding how does this fit within the very grand scheme of um, a very large um, application and network. And so there are huge trade-offs to be made. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds and Manchester covering all things tech, with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. Cathcart are great at what they do and clearly understand the space they work in. Cathcart has sponsored our meetup since day one, and without them, this podcast would be so much more difficult to create. They also run Mancamel and Scottamel. Check out their website in the show notes. So we were looking into a sentiment analysis model. We had one already, and we were evaluating um, some new novel techniques out there. And um, there was there was one that was uh, pre-trained on many, many uh, GPUs, which looked great. And it was like the precision and the recall was beautiful, and everyone was really excited and happy. And I put my hand up, and I was like, so how long does it take to classify? <laughs> so uh, yeah, every, every uh, input took 17 seconds to classify. Oh. Our clients were expecting um, response times between 5 and 30 seconds depending on which part of the product they're taking mm. um, and so if you wanted to classify say 100,000 pieces of text <laughs> 17 seconds each our clients would probably walk away mm. so that's a really like hands-on example so what we did was we we did a proxy model um, and we actually used some of these so we actually evaluated our own the, the effectiveness of the model so the accuracy of the model using that accuracy as a as a inferred uh, how good our model could do and mm. we didn't get too bad away from it and it took uh, 17 milliseconds to, <laughs> to, to classify rather than 17 seconds so that's um, and, and I, I, I cannot claim that I built that that was a, a couple of my very lovely uh, team who went away and, and solved that one for us so yeah so it can't be done without the team so mm. No, that's really interesting. I, um, I, always, I always like it when people are like, yeah, it's the product first, because there's so many roads you can go down with data science, because there's so many different things happening. Right. And it's really, it's not a nice constraint necessarily, but it's a, a constraint that focuses you. If you say, well, okay, 17 seconds, we can't do it, call it in, we'll figure something else out. It's a case of practicality, isn't it? Mm. Like, if you can't deliver your product, you're wasting your time. Exactly. I think as well, like you do have to have some boundaries because otherwise data science right now is still in that, we're still very much in that world where data science is this huge generalized thing and it's this generalized beast that everybody kind of works in a little part in. Mm. And so I'm very much, that's why I, I, my passion is data science in production. That's the bit that I like to focus on is the, how do I work with engineering teams? How do I work with infrastructure teams? That's the bit that I, um, I've kind of grown to love, I guess. Um, if a, if a, my path had taken me somewhere different, maybe I'd absolutely love doing Kane nearest neighbours or something like that and be a total unsupervised uh, clustering methods machine, but that is, that's not my path. So. <laughs> so how much do you try and automate? Um, how much do you, is human in the loop something that you um, try and keep as part of your machine learning uh, process at all? 
I think I define human in the loop in two ways. You've got the physical human in the loop who's the data scientist or the data engineer who's kind of literally got the job and being employed to do the things to put the plums into place, the pipelines into place. And then you've got um, kind of systems like Mechanical Turk, for example, where you can crowdsource people mm. to go away and do some like human in the loop classification. So kind of, and both things have different places in, in many, many different businesses. But within Hello Soda, how we use these is that um, I, you know, I don't see any place right now where we can't have human in the loop. I think very much in 10 years time, we, we may be in a position where, uh, you know, these, these methods of kind of synthesizing data and, and synthesizing data has come so far that you don't have like bias in data and the problems that we tackle right now. But at the moment, I would very much say we are still very hands-on in our approach. So that means that when we build a model and we want recalibration, we will have, say, say if we want to do a new percentile norm of, a, of an output of a model every week. Mm. That would that actually sends us an email and we can manually check that. And so we will still manually check that. Everything else will still be completely automated, the fetching of the data, the recalibration, and then the, the emails being automatically sent. We use Airflow for a lot of those kind of cron job processes. Mm. But then there's still an element of, okay, there's something weird here. And then where we want to get to is that we would then have a monitoring piece that then says, is this if this distribution looks wildly different, so last week, send you know, send out an even bigger warning. Don't just send the email. So we don't have to check every email now. Ironically, with that model, actually, we did notice that uh, it slipped through the cracks and that the distribution was still behaving completely fine at the surface layer, but the underlying data was actually gone a bit. Um, uh, erratic, let's mm. say, and our normalization methods were disguising that. And so by having that human in the loop, we were able to. So then there's lots and lots of ways of um, kind of getting rid of that and, and doing kind of, uh, you know, distribution tests to check whether or not that does or doesn't happen. But one of the comments I would say is that, that like, that's why we're still here, right? That's why we've not got a machine building data science and any, any person or company that says, oh, I can get rid of the people that do your data science. Um, I walk very quickly <laughs> away from um, because, because um, I, don't think, I don't think we're there that yet. Though I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. Um, I think in certain companies there are. But certainly for us, there's a huge amount of work gone into understanding our clients' needs, our requirements from a product perspective. And fundamentally as well, from a, like a sales perspective, they like having people to talk to who are building these things and, and can interpret it in a way that they want it to. And I, don't, I do think there could be a time where a robot can do all of the things that I'm doing and speak in the way, but probably without the, the joy and enthusiasm and <laughs> British sarcasm that I, I like to give at the same time. Yes, it, certainly in terms of figuring out what a product is uh, and what it should do, there's no getting around speaking to people. Yeah, so it's um, it, that that comes down to it. We have to do so many jobs as data yes. scientists. I think we're totally, um, we, we don't give ourselves enough credit as well. And I, I see that in lots of people that I speak to don't give themselves enough credit for the kind of work that we have to tackle. And I think now, like, I feel like there is, there's this kind of new wave of data scientists coming out who do have a kind of understanding that it's, it's, this is a difficult field mm. and that you kind of have to pivot into it from something else and then you have to become, a, you don't have to become a specialist, but it, it's good to become a specialist in something because it is a bit like, 
it, I, the best quote I've seen is the one that says, um, it, data science is like the web engineering of the late 90s, uh, before we were able to understand like full stack web development, front end, back end, and all of the kind of the different kind of uh, libraries that you need within kind of web development. So, and then having a specialist that way, uh, I think we're still very much in that. I see lots of machine learning engineer and I asked somebody what do you mean by that and it was just essentially a full stack data scientist so <laughs> I put my hands in my head and it was very sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean it depends, there's lots of, there's a, a wide, a broad range of interpretation of what data scientist is um, and it, across different companies how they are used or employed is very, very different as well. So data scientist in one company can look very different from a data mm. scientist in another company. Mm. It's also, I think Liam... Yeah, yeah, we, we spoke about it in the other yeah. podcast. Like, imagine you're a company that doesn't really understand data science yet, and then you have to write the job spec to try and hire that first data scientist, and you're going to yeah. find some like strange blog posts, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the internet doesn't help at the moment. So you were saying earlier about um, production times being way too long and making it impractical. So what other common or fundamental issues do you find yourselves having to address in production? Yeah, so I think as well there's still a um, tendency that if you're doing exploratory data analysis, let's say, that you don't want a version control back because you're scared of somebody seeing it or you're scared, oh, it's not the finished piece. And I feel like that's a huge mental barrier for most data scientists I meet that start out at Hello Soda to overcome. So one of the big recommendations I have is version control everything like it's it's very much everything is in development um, and it's the best thing from sitting and watching a software engineer is that they they don't start out by having you know this beautiful object orientated code from day one they don't they yeah. don't um, they like their functional program is a it is a process and there's enough science to it but it, it, they refine it as they go as they're working through that and then for me data science is the same so to get your head into doing stuff in production even your exploratory stuff should be treated with a mindset of production so uh, can I just ask then if when I do exploratory analysis I don't do Python notebooks yeah. and I put those under version control but you can't see the changes that you make because mm -hmm. for the, all the benefits they are a mess of JSON blocks yeah. uh, when it comes down to it yeah. so have you got a good way of dealing with that I know you work more in yeah, so um, like so, I with my R notebooks, I check. Well, you can still check out the HTML rendition of it from previously. So that is the way that I overcome that. Is that I can okay. still get back to the HTML object, like the, the version of it as it was before. If I check out that point, so there's no reason you can't do that. And Git LFS is your friend for this because you should not be committing with normal Git any HTML. Um, it should be that should be done with Git LFS, and that will help you because obviously it's not it's not binary. So large file storage. Yeah. I'll put it in the notes. There is also obviously GitHub will render GPython notebook files for you anyway. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. can still historically go back to other points and that I think mm -hmm. it still shows them. No, I'm yeah. try that. Yeah. So you just have to move back to the old commit and it should still show you the old one. But the I guess the issue is like Git is so focused on like having little text descriptions and you seeing the exact changes you made in your code, you, mm. you've essentially lost that because you, you will lose the this is new or this is old. You yeah. will just have yeah. a picture of the whole report. So you yeah. have to sort of write a good commit message. But 
I get what you mean, like you can't see your code cells changing over time. Yeah, there's no diff in the way that yeah. we understand diffs. Um, so I do definitely appreciate that. Um, and uh, the, but the thing is, is that the exploratory analysis is a process anyway, and that's where we're going into like rep reproducibility because mm. mm. my stuff doesn't get reproducible until the point where it's kind of coming to closure, where mm. I've gone back yeah. and I've reiterated it over enough times that then, and, you know, I definitely do not recommend anybody to do kind of an analysis and then at the end go back and refactor all their code mm -hmm. because nobody wants that. But like as I go through, I look at ways that I can then turn that piece of code into a, a you know a much better global function rather yeah. than just yeah. a very much a local function. So that's kind of how I approach that. And then in terms of kind of the problems, so I'll pick on some problems that we're solving at the moment. So we've enabled the data science team to actually deploy their uh, data product which are written in containers so that could be like a, a dashboard application that could be a model um, as uh, via onto kubernetes um, themselves so our kubernetes uh, they will take care of all of the scaling and the resource requirements that that, um, that product or that service itself needs and um, we've actually uh, the the engineering team uh, here at Hello Soda have actually um, helped train up the data team to, to do that ourselves. So that's one thing that helps with that kind of deployment mindset. And the next part that we've been working so that's our CI and, and CD pipelines, so uh, continuous integration and uh, continual deployment. So um, and we're doing that. The data team are actually part of that. Now there's a big mindset barrier again to overcome there because as a data scientist what do I expect my data to be oh I get to play around with pretty data what's this engineering infrastructure I don't want to touch it but actually the team here responded really well and they really enjoy seeing that they are in sole control of getting thing A to hey I have a hosted service that has its own DNS that says howisoda.com forward slash my new model and they're like ah oh, this is awesome and it's hosted on an actual server that you know the cost isn't, isn't crazy for and they, that kind of gives them that sense of pride so the next thing is test driven development which no one wants to yeah, no, I, I've, I've had um, in one of my old companies, I, I'm going through that process with infrastructure and going to get to the final point of saying, okay, this thing that we built, working with infrastructure and we able to deploy, it was exactly that and yeah. kind of attitude like, yes, this is a real achievement for me. It was, it yeah. Brilliant. yeah. Did that answer the question around deployment? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, test driven development is awesome. We use uh, GoCD when okay. I work for okay. continuous integration. Yeah. Um, and yeah, once you once you get all those green bars, yes, mm. it's worked. Yeah. I'm good to go. Everything's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, and once you get, I think for the test driven stuff, it the hardest part for me is getting just spending the time. It's really really important to do it, but spending the time to make your test data because yeah. you just want to get ready. You just want to go and code, do the analysis, build those functions, you know, get it analyzed or transformed. You don't want to be Making the, the test data, but it's so it makes everything so much easier if you spend that time. hundred. This is a new concept for me, and yeah, at first I was like, I, it's a mental barrier, especially as a data person, to get your head around. Um, so that's I'll, I'll come back to you in six months' time <laughs> on that one. So, but it is yeah. part of our we're forever kind of um, pushing the boundaries of what we're doing to make sure we're doing better things in production. Mm. Um, and I feel like there's probably someone out there that's thinking about how do we do tests driven development for data stuff.
stuff mm. properly. Mm. Yeah, I know there's more and more stuff, uh, more and more cool ideas coming out. Um, I've seen Hypothesis, um, the testing library use, which is more about property-driven testing, as opposed to um, kind of, is that, um, what is the answer to, uh, so I'm not sure the best way of phrasing it, but you, um, you put a test, does the result equal this? Whereas yeah, we said, yeah. But now you assert, what is the prop, um, does the result of our function have certain properties, oh. as opposed to does it give us this exact answer, which oh, means gotcha. it's much easier to generate lots and lots of um, data within certain constraints rather than hand coding it yourself. Because mm. I'm very good, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at um, test-driven development when it doesn't involve writing um, <laughs> lots of data. When it does require writing lots of data, I'm really bad at it. <laughs> yeah, and making sure that each, the test for each function or well, each function has its own test data that's independent of other. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've learned that the hard way. Because yeah. there's, <laughs> there's lots of ways of people have almost had this problem in software engineering, and it's different in data science. And just to be clear for the audience as well, when we're talking about test data, we do not mean your training or your test <laughs> data. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah point. so um, <laughs> if you, yeah. Testing is a it's a horrible word for all these different things. So I feel yeah, I feel like we need to we need to become we need to define our languages as well. Actually. Yeah, that's another element of data science. This is a really good example of yeah. something that data scientists are giving themselves more credit for because we're talking about um, intricacies of working very well with best practices in two different fields. So don't feel, <laughs> right. so don't feel like you should be kicking yourself and not knowing these two different things. You're doing very well to know either one of these things yes. or anything about yes. them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So, this is going on. Um, so you, I remember when you were in Manchester, you yes. grew your own beer. Yes. Have you, and you work opposite a lovely Baden beer bar. Yes. yes have you, um, how are you enjoying Austin beer and have you begun brewing your own again? Okay, so how am I enjoying uh, Austin beer? It's awesome. Uh, I was very fortunate that in Manchester we've got a lot of really cool breweries and when I moved to Austin there's lots of cool breweries so I was really happy. So I live on the east side so I can walk to five, a whole five, I can walk and take my dog with me to breweries and um, so and they there's a really great sour place um, there's um, there's a, another great place that's kind of got a really large outdoor patio um, and really good they do 17 or 18 of their own beers um, so there's a so to name a few of the beers that I'm getting into so there's a, a brewery called Hops and Grain local to me uh, Blue Owl and Lazarus and Zilka Brew another one so there's a yes, I have all of them on my doorstep and then further out you've got places like Chester King who do some mad farmhouse ale type things and in the north you've got Edelbert which also hosts the Women in Tech Happy Hour so we, yeah, so you get lots of women who are very much into tech and beer. So I found myself. Sure <laughs> yeah. So um, so quick shout out to Edelbert for doing that and and Caitlin who runs that as well. So um, and in terms of brewing my own beer, so I was fortunate enough that I did that in London when I did it, and oh. I uh, got to go to an, a place that kind of gave you all the kit, so I didn't make a mess of my own kitchen. I came away convinced that this was going to be my new like side hobby, um, and then I realised no, I didn't want to ruin my kitchen. Now, <laughs> fortunately, I rent my apartment in Austin, so and I have a very big kitchen, so I could get back into it, 
But at the moment, I'm very much more going enjoying going out and drinking it rather than making it. And I, it tastes a lot better that way right now. <laughs> I definitely love drinking <laughs> So, yeah. Brilliant. I'm a bit jealous. Um, and you cause the beautiful weather to be drinking in too. Well, when sci pi happens this yes. summer, it's, I'm waiting for all the Pythonistas to come yeah. out to, to Austin oh to, uh, over the next couple of years um, and we can party. I'll just take, yeah. a, take it as holiday and just yeah. turn up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just knock on my door. Like, I've come for the beer and the vats. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Cool. Yeah, at Side 2014 is where I met Jake Vanderplas, mm. who is freaking awesome. Name dropper. He yeah. is so pleasant. Um, yeah. Yeah, so thanks so much for giving us your time, Leanne. Thank you for having this me. This has been super fun. Mm. Thanks for listening to my waffle. I hope it wasn't too much waffle. No, it was really interesting. Awesome. So, yeah. Thank you very, very much, good. and thank you for Hello Soda for um, hosting us. Yeah, yeah and thank you to Hello Soda for giving us a room. All right. Yes. Cheers. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>